You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Natasha Crane. She is a speaker, author, blogger, and podcaster who equips Christians to think more clearly about holding to a biblical worldview in an increasingly challenging secular culture. Her new book is called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Welcome, Natasha Crane. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. Good to have you on. And so we were on the Stand a Reason. We were kind of together at the first conference in Costa Mesa. That's where we met, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so we have we have we have met, and we we were friends. And so I wanted to have you on because your book is so crucial for Christians to read today. It's, we live in the most confused time, I think, uh, not the most confused time, but in in recent history, it feels like the most confused time. And so tell me just briefly why, what compelled you to write the Faithfully Different and kind of the general idea of it? Yeah, well, it all kind of, so I've written three prior books that were all focused on parents. So teaching apologetics to parents, how do you make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity, and then equip your kids with that understanding. So that was kind of my focus. But during the social unrest of 2020, and that summer and everything that was going on, I started noticing how many secular ideas were creeping into a lot of Christians views on things. Mm -hmm. And it was really troubling. And so I started writing on my blog about that. And I would, I'd been very narrowly focused on parents prior to that point. But I said, you know what, I need to write something about this because this is a big deal. These secular ideas are just creeping into biblical worldview for so many people. So I wrote a blog post about how Christians were getting swept into a lot of secular ideas in that cultural moment. And it went viral. It was shared 277,000 times. It was everywhere online. And I was getting emails for weeks and weeks from people, excuse me, who were just thanking me and saying, "I, I didn't know how to put my finger on this, but this is what's happening. I'm noticing it with so many of my friends. I'm seeing this everywhere around me. Thank you for clarifying. And so I started writing more articles that had nothing to do with parenting, but were really more of like the cultural analysis and looking at secularism versus a biblical worldview. And they kept getting shared and shared thousands of times. And so that's kind of how this idea came about is I saw that there was a real need for talking about this issue of secularism as a worldview and helping Christians to understand how does that really differ from a biblical worldview? If you trust in the inspiration and authority of the Bible as the word of God, how will your views of everything be different versus secularism? So faithfully different is all about regaining that clarity in a secular culture. And I break it down into three sections of faithfully different believing, faithfully different thinking, and faithfully different living. Kind of look at the relationship between all those, because those pieces have to all go together if we're going to be faithfully different in today's world. Yeah, it's really, this is a really important book, because uh, it it clarifies so much. And, you know, I this is the the kind of the whole thrust of my show is all about how the lies of the culture and the biblical truth behind the lies. So this kind of, this book is very aligned with the show's uh, 
thrust. So let's get into kind of some more specific things in terms of worldviews. You you talk about different worldviews and you talk about secularism. And a lot of people kind of just assume that secularism is this sort of neutral thing and it's 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 no big deal. But tell us why secularism is not neutral and how uh, it's at odds with a biblical, I'm sorry, with a biblical worldview. Yeah, it's a really important question. And so maybe we'll start with a couple of definitions. Let's talk about what a worldview is and what secular is, uh, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. So a worldview is just how we answer every one of these big questions about life. So everyone's got a worldview, whether they realize it or not, or whether they've consciously come to it. But it's how we individually answer questions like, who are we as humans? Why are we here? What is our purpose, if any, in life? Where are we going after we die? Is there a God? These are all these big worldview kinds of questions. So everyone has a worldview. Now, secular, when we use that term, people use it in all kinds of different ways. So it is really important to clarify what we're talking about here. I think the most common context that people hear it in is when we're talking about the political structure of a country. So the United States was the first explicitly secular country in that we do not defer to the authority, keyword authority, of a particular religion or God in our public life. So it was set up that way that everyone is free to believe as they want, and there's no authority of a given religion. Well, you can also talk about that in terms of individuals. So when we talk about secular for an individual, if an individual does not defer to the authority of a given religion or God in their own life, then they would have a secular kind of worldview. And this is what we mean by secularism. So the tie that functionally binds the worldviews of millions of people is that they defer to the authority of themselves rather than the authority of a particular religion or God. Mm. And so really that is what we're talking about here when we discuss the different types of authority in a biblical worldview versus a secular worldview. It's for Christians, the authority is God and he's revealed himself and who we are and what he wants from us and what a relationship is, all these things through the Bible. And for a person who has a secular worldview, the ultimate authority is himself. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't necessarily have a belief in some kind of God. Many people do. In fact, 90% of Americans say that they believe in some kind of God or a higher power, right? right? So it doesn't mean that you're not secular just because you believe something is out there. But if you don't believe that that something or someone who's out there has actually revealed anything further through scripture or in any way, then you're back to yourself in determining, well, this is what I think that being once, or this is what I think is morally right or wrong. Yeah. That's what I said with Sean Miguel. That's what I said to Sean the, the other last week is, is that, uh, you know, in our culture now we filter everything. We filter truth through our own experience rather than through some objective source outside of us. Absolutely. And so that's the heart of secularism. And so when we talk about people with a secular worldview, they can believe all kinds of different things. It's not a single worldview in that they all have the same belief about God or the same belief about morality necessarily, but the tie is that they all resort to the authority of the self. And that's really the critical link there. A lot of people think uh, that when you take away religion, you take away God, that you just don't have any authority, but that's not true. You're left with the authority of you. And so that's the commonality that you see amongst so many people today. So obviously this is the central conflict between secularism and a biblical worldview. Where does your authority lie? And if you have a biblical worldview, worldview, your authority needs to line up with God in his word, because that's that objective anchor for what's actually true 
about reality. It's not yeah. to be filtered through our feelings. There's an objective anchor here. So we're going to have a lot of differences with culture on that. Well, so, yeah, but talk about a little bit about how, because we do, when I was, before I was a Christian 12 years ago, before I had a radical encounter with God, um, you know, I thought my secularism, I thought it was, like you say in the book, I thought it was neutral. And of course, it's not neutral. And so kind of dispel that, that myth about it being sort of this neutral thing that, you know, oh, it's just, it doesn't really it doesn't do anything. It's, it's not, you know, it's not making any kind of claims about truth or so what do you say about that? Yeah, it, that, that's so important. And you did ask that originally. So I got a little uh, away from that with my definitions, but yes, coming back to your original question on neutrality, it's not neutral because it's still a worldview. It's still answering these basic questions about reality. If you're going to be totally neutral, you're just a blob. You have no thoughts about anything, right? I mean, my, my <laughs> microphone here, that, that is truly neutral. It has no intent. It has no answers to anything. It has no worldview, but every person has a worldview. And if you have a worldview, you're not neutral. And there's this idea that, you know, especially when we talk about how a country should run, there's this idea that we can just get down to this very neutral pie crust in society that we can all agree upon. And you might want to take your blueberry fillings and put it in somewhere else, you Christian over here, or, you know, Mormons might want to put in their cherry filling, whatever you keep that to yourself. You stay private with that. We're going to have our neutral pie crust. But the reality is that every society functions from some idea of what is good and bad and right and wrong answers big questions about what should we be free to do? What should we not be free to do? These are worldview questions. So you can't get to a truly neutral pie crust because everyone is going to come to that with different assumptions and beliefs. And some people think, well, you know, what about equality? For example, human equality, isn't that part of a basic pie crust that we can all agree on? Well, actually, no, that is very tied to a person's worldview. There are people who are consistent atheists. I use Peter Singer as an example in the book, as an ethicist who basically feels that it's okay, or not feels, but thinks that it's okay to kill disabled children after they're born, because he is consistent with an atheistic worldview in that we're all just molecules in motion, basically. We're all just material stuff. So humans are not equal just because they're humans in that viewpoint. Some humans are of more value than others. Disabled humans are not as valuable in his worldview, in his opinion. He has no objective basis for human equality. So a lot of people assume that there are some things that we can all agree on, but even if we agree on some things, there are a lot of things that we're going to disagree on. You're never going to come to a truly neutral pie crust because every society is going to function from big worldview answers. Yeah. When you take away God and the, and that human beings are created in the image of God, then there's no foundation for anything and for morality, for dignity, for worth, for there's no, there's no real foundation for that. And um, we'll get into that a little bit later, but just kind of even just like this idea of social justice warriors. It's like, well, where do they get the idea of justice? You know what? And, and I, my, you know, my belief is that obviously we're all stamped with God's image. And so we have that a communicable attribute of God, the, the, of justice. And so we all want justice. All humans want justice, but the social justice warriors and those the BLM and those kinds of groups are basing their, their, there's no basis, there's no foundation for their desire for justice. 
because if we just live in a materialist world and then there's no, <laughs> there is no justice, right? Exactly. There's no objective basis for it. They, they right. might have a subjective basis within their own worldview of saying, well, this is what we would like to happen. This is how we define justice. This is how we want to see it. But you have no objective basis unless you have a God who is actually in the position of being a higher than human moral authority, who is the objective standard for defining justice. And we can, we can talk more about that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. If you don't have an objective basis outside of yourself, outside of human beings alone, then everything's just a matter of opinion. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, do no harm. You talk about this in the book, do you know the do no harm principle is it's funny because it, it, the idea of harm, you have to define what harm is. You have to, if, if you're, if you're a Christian, harm is different from if you're a secularist, like it's a a completely different idea of what harm is. So talk about that principle, do no harm and how it's so flawed. Yeah. I think that a lot of people think harm means I feel harmed. That's, that's the definition that our secular culture is using. If someone feels harmed, they must have been actually harmed in some way. But to your point, it defines on, it depends on how you define that word harm. And I think this is where Christians start getting pulled into secular views because we don't want people to feel harmed, right? We don't want, we don't want anyone to feel that we have hurt them in some way. But the reality is, is that people can feel hurt or they can even claim to be harmed by things that are actually just matters of truth that we are called to talk about as Christians, that we are called to be salt and light for. So if we are saying in truth, in God's truth, that yes, there really are male and female people in the world. Well, there are plenty of people today who say we need to get rid of the gender binary, that it is harmful and it is oppressive to even talk in male and female terms. And so we need to get rid of that altogether. We need to eradicate that from our language, from all the norms of society. That's got to be gone because it's harmful. Well, who gets to define what's harmful? It cannot just be a matter of feelings because conversely, we could say, well, I feel harmed by you getting rid of the gender binary. Well, who's going to win? Who breaks that tie? We each feel harmed in some way. Feelings are subjective and as hard as it is because we don't want people to feel hurt as Christians with a biblical worldview, we have to go back to the Bible to determine what is good and what is true. Mm -hmm. And so that is ultimately where we need to be looking for in terms of the truth and in terms of what it means to harm others or to not harm others. A lot of people feel harmed by the truth and we don't want to harm people with truth. We want truth in love, of course, and grace. But a lot of times it's simply the truth that is harmful to people or that makes people feel harmed, I should say. Yeah. And I mean, that people, you know, I get accused of harming people by by talking about homosexual behavior as being sinful and it's actually it's what i'm doing is not it's actually the most loving thing you can do to to a, a person is tell them the truth and in grace obviously in love but um but I, yeah people accuse me of that <laughs> of harming harming them and i'm like but i'm this is, I want, and this is, and sometimes when I get into conversations with people, I tell them, you know, the only reason I'm telling you this is because I love you. That's the only motivation I have. There's no other motivation. Like, I I don't want to be right. It's not about being right or this or that. It's about you. I want you to have eternal life. Like that's all I care about. So they pro- and they probably look at you like you have five heads at that point because secularists have a different definition of love. 
So you're defining love as a Christian, as you should, as I'm loving you given what's true and given that I, number one, love God, the greatest commandment, which then frames the second commandment of what it means to love others. We can't love others as Christians unless we know what it means to first love God and to tell his truth. And so we want as Christians to love others, meaning that we want for them what God wants, whether or not they want that for themselves. And that's a huge distinction because from a secular perspective, that's all very self-oriented and my own self-authority love is I'm going to affirm whatever choices you make because that's loving. So to the person you're talking to and you're trying to say, Hey, I'm telling you this because I love you. They're like not even processing a lot of times because that's not love to them. They're thinking from the secular perspective that love is affirming whatever I want. And this is how I want to live. And this is what I want to do. So how can you possibly be loving to me right now? So I think we have a lot of work as Christians to do in bridging that gap. You know, even going to the next step of saying, maybe this doesn't make sense initially, but I'm saying this because I love you from a Christian perspective. And from, from a Christian perspective, here's what it would mean to love. It wants for, it wants for you what God wants for you. And if this is what God has said, and this is his truth, then this is what I want you to hear because I do love you in that sense. So I think, you know, there's just so much bridge building we have to do because the vocabulary has changed so much and means so many different things. Yeah. We need to build back better. I'm just kidding. Um, so let's talk about media because I, you know, I talk about this all the time on my show is because I lived in that world for so long and, and I know I'm friend. I used to be very close, if not, you know, dated a lot of people in Hollywood who, who provide basically create the content that everyone is watching. And and I say, I say this, you know, they're, they're, that content is coming from a place, a secularist worldview. It's coming from a secular worldview, number one. But it's also coming from a place of uh, darkness because they don't know the truth. They're, they're in the dark. So that content is coming from a place of darkness. So talk about, because you talk about this in the book, talk about the media and how secularism influences the media and how kind of damaging that is. Yeah, I I talk about it. It's in my third chapter, which is all about why secularism is so compelling. And I actually take this from my marketing background. So I used to be a a professional in marketing, marketing executive, marketing uh, professor, and kind of absorbed in the marketing world. And marketers are expert influencers. So that's really all marketing is. It is a study of influence. How do you effectively get a given message to a given audience. That's what marketing is all about. So in order to consider why is it that secularism is so compelling, I break down the two factors from marketing. Lots and lots of research has gone into this, how people are influenced. And it's two things. Number one, it is the felt relevance that a given message has for you. And number two, it's the prominence. So in terms of the relevance that people feel, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a real need for a message, but it means you feel the need for the message. So if you think about the secular message that you're your own boss, you're the authority, it all comes back to you. Well, the Bible actually tells us why that's so compelling, because the Bible says that given our fallen nature, every single one of us wants to walk away from God. There's no one righteous, not one. We all want to go our own way. So the Bible explains this to us front and center, even as Christians, we still struggle with this. We still struggle with wanting the authority of the self a lot of times. So it is a super compelling message. I think I say in the book, like, you know, we theoretically could be surrounded as Christians by 
a completely different type of worldview that's not appealing to us in any way, where this isn't a struggle, but we're not. This whole worldview that is dominant around us is super compelling because it appeals directly to the desires of our fallen nature. And so we have, it does have this felt relevance for us. So that's the first thing. And then the second part of influence and why there is so much influence of secularism on, on everyone, both Christians and non, is prominence. Prominence is how much do you see that message? So it's one thing for a message to be relevant to you, but it's another thing for you to see it all the time. And when you see things all the time, you become convinced that you need them, right? You hear a commercial all the time for the new iPhone, and maybe you didn't necessarily feel it was so relevant at first, but the more you hear it, you're like, I need the new iPhone, right? (laughs) That's how marketing works. So you've got to have the relevant message and you've got to have the prominence. So if you put these things together, secularism in its core messaging about everything's about you, you're the authority, no one can tell you you're wrong, feelings are your guide, happiness is your goal, and judging is a sin is the way I put it in the book. You have all those messages super compelling. And then the media comes in, coming back to your question about media, and it just pushes that message just like a ubiquitous ad campaign in all of our lives. You're going to see that same messaging just like a billboard. It's in the shows that we watch. It's in any kind of entertainment that we're consuming. It's in the the classrooms that we attend. It's in the educational system. It's in the news. It's literally everywhere. So you've got the prominence that's just pushing with the relevance. And when you put those two together, you get pressure. You get a lot of pressure to conform to this kind of secular perspective. And we don't even realize it a lot of times of how it seeps in, but it does because we do see it so much everywhere. But the media is just, uh, it's just everywhere. You have, that is the default message that we get at every corner, every way that we turn. Yeah. And I talk about this too, all the time, but what, so what is the, what is the remedy? So for Christians, What's the antidote to this constant barrage of secularist ideas and, um, you know, kind of persuasion? What's the what's the antidote to that? Well, number one, first and foremost, is that we're reading our Bibles. And that sounds so basic and it sounds <laughs> no, so it like Christian. Like, like, let's yeah, read our Bibles. The of the Spirit. But <laughs> there you go. Thank you for putting the tabs in so that we all know you're reading your Bible. <laughs> <laughs> That's not why I, I put it. the tabs in. I use the tabs. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's almost shameful that it sounds so funny that, you know, to say it out loud, but unfortunately it has to be said out loud because research shows that very few Christians actually read their Bibles on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And yet if we're not totally clear on what the Bible says, our authority of God and his revealed word, if we're not totally clear, how are we going to combat secular influences? We constantly have those influences pressing on around us everywhere we go that prominence I was just talking about. But yet, if you don't have something that is rooting you in what you should be believing and living in the truth, you're going to be influenced by that all the time. It's like being stuck under a press of something. It's just pressing down on you and you don't have anything to push back with. So we have to start with the Bible and knowing the Bible really well. And I think beyond reading the Bible consistently and really getting into God's word, I do think it's super important to understand the specific pressures that the secular culture is posing to us because it helps us with the discernment sometimes. So it's not 
always like immediately clear going from the Bible to understanding things like, you know, critical theory and virtue signaling and cancel culture, all those things. Sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper to understand what those things are um, that the Bible doesn't directly address. And that's really where I hope that my book will help people is to kind of bridge that connection is, is to say, okay, given biblical truth, given that we see the Bible as our authority, as God's inspired and authoritative word of God, how should we view things like progressive Christianity and the deconstructions that we see in culture and deconversions and virtue signaling and all the false Jesus ideas that we see? And so number one, first and foremost, is having that foundation of being in the word all the time. And then secondly, when we understand what's going on in culture and we get that deeper understanding, I think that it helps us to be clear in making that, that connection between the Bible and current cultural analysis. Yeah. I mean, I, I say this all the time. People are tired of of me saying it, but I say, you know, if you've watched an hour of Netflix, you've been lied to explicitly or implicitly for an hour. So now you need to read the Bible for an hour to get the truth and to, you know, renew your mind because that, and it's, it's so true. It's like, and you talk about, you talked about, you just mentioned deconversion and, um, talk about how, talk about that. What is deconversion and why is it so kind of popular today and, and what is secular humanism or what does the secular, the secular worldview have to do with that? Yeah. So this is a big thing. I mean, you, you see this all the time lately. I mean, there was another celebrity in the news, a a rapper in the last week who said that he was, you know, turning away from his Christian faith. And you start to see all these celebrities and they make the headlines. So-and-so is not a Christian or so-and-so is deconstructing. So a couple of definitions, usually when someone says that they're deconverting, it means that they're just completely walking away from any notion of God or Christianity. They're maybe becoming atheist or agnostic Mm -hmm. or what researchers call nothing in particular. So that is kind of one whole area of deconversions. But what's really especially popular right now is deconstructions. And deconstructions is really a fancy term for, I used to be a Christian in the conservative theological sense, but now I'm turning away from any kind of concept of the authority of the Bible and moving toward a more progressive Christian view. I don't know that someone who's deconstructing would actually phrase it that way, but I'm kind of paraphrasing reading between the lines of what usually this is. It usually means that they're more in the progressive Christian world. Um, And for those who aren't familiar with that term either, progressive Christianity is really when people don't see the word of God as the inspired and authoritative word of God anymore, but rather kind of man's best attempt to write about God over time. And they might see it as a great thing. They might appreciate the Bible. They might think the Bible is a beautiful tool, that kind of thing, but they don't see it as their ultimate authority. So progressive Christians are going to have a totally different worldview really than a Christian who seeks to have a biblical worldview. So when we hear the term deconstruction, that's really what's going on is that people are walking away from a a biblical worldview and into more of the authority of the self right? We're walking away from the authority of God and the word. We're walking away to what I believe is true. And so people deconstruct right into their own self-authority. And it's a very interesting thing to see because it be, these these stories, these accounts, they become very popular. Sometimes they hit the the headlines, and sometimes they're just on Insta, people's Instagram and their other social media accounts. But I talk about in in one of my chapters how they're very much crafted these narratives to appeal to people 
who might have questions about their faith, who might not be so solid in their faith, they're almost like reverse evangelism. They're almost yeah. crafted to be a testimony of why you should walk away too. And so, so they're, they have kind of a predictable format and that I outline in the book about how there's always, okay, here's the, the catalyst. This is what got me thinking. I was a Christian just like you, but then I realized there are a lot of problems with Christianity. That's the catalyst, I call it. And then they have what I call the avalanche of questions. They'll list like 10 different questions that supposedly no one had answers to. You know, why could, uh, you know, a good God allow so much evil? And what about the killing of all the Canaanites? And why are there errors and contradictions in the Bible? And so they, they list all of these questions. They say no one really had these good answers for them. And then there's the happy ending where they remind you that, Hey, don't feel bad for me. Everything's great. I'm happy now. Everything's wonderful. I feel joy and I am at peace. The implication of course, is that, Hey, if you want to deconvert or deconstruct, you're going to be okay too, because guess what? I'm happy. And that is one of the secular tenets I talk about in the book. The happiness is assumed to be the ultimate goal of life. So it's kind of like you get to the end of your deconversion or deconstruction narrative and you tell people you're happy. That's supposed to speak for itself. That's supposed to like tell you like, oh, well, they're happy. So therefore, by the way, and biblically, I mean, Jesus says, (laughs) come and die. Like he's die to yourself, die to your desires, die to like, it's not about happiness. It's about dying to yourself, you know? Of course, there's joy in that. It's such different goals. It's like, are we seeking happiness or are we seeking truth? If we have truth, then we should be joyful, right? We have the joy in the Lord, but, but there, but really it becomes almost like a, like I said, a reverse evangelism, trying to get more people to come to that mentality of, well, follow your own heart, follow your feelings. You're going to be happy too it's all a very secular approach, but there's a whole kind of cottage industry that has risen arisen around all of these kind of concepts of deconstruction and helping one another deconstruct. And there are books being written about it, conferences that discuss it. It's, it's really an, an interesting thing, but unfortunately they are appealing to a lot of people who maybe haven't investigated all those questions. And yeah. when they see the avalanche of questions, they're very impacted by it because they haven't looked into the answers and they're like, Oh, those are good questions. And there are no answers. And there, but there this are person answers. already looked for the answers. <laughs> yes, we've, those they answers didn't find them. We've addressed those. Those questions have been addressed for centuries, and we have exactly. we, we have good answers for those. Um, exactly. Yeah, and the media. And by the way, I mean, as you say in the book, the media. <laughs> I mean, I, I, this social media has exacerbated all of this, but the you know the legacy media and just media in general loves they just love these deconversion or D yeah. Deconversion stories. Like the New York times can't wait to talk about, you know, somewhat some prominent person who's going through this deconversion. And um, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of like um, fodder for the mainstream kind of legacy media. Cause they love it. Yeah. They Absolutely. love to cast they can't out. Wait on, to publish it. Yeah. They can't wait. And so you do a section in the book called the push. <laughs> the push and pull of unbiblical ideas. And you lay out five principles for guarding your biblical beliefs as a Christian. Talk about what the principle number one um, it's, I think it's the, the nicest sounding beliefs are not necessarily the right beliefs. And I think you, you give the example of 
quote, love is all that matters. Yeah, there are a lot of things that really sound good in today's culture that everyone takes to be the right position or right view to have, but they're not necessarily the right beliefs. So when we say love is all that matters, well, that sounds, that sounds fuzzy and nice and everything like love. And, you know, technically when Jesus is asked, what are, what's the greatest commandment? Both are about love. Number one, love God. And number two, love others. So sometimes people then take that and say, yeah, it's all about love. Again, like we talked about earlier, though, what do you mean by love? We can't we can't get sucked in by these cute little statements like love is love and love is all that matters. And, you know, Jesus is all about love. Well, okay, but how are you defining love and how does that apply to the current situation we're talking about? I see this all the time. I see when people get into, you know, debates about different things online and somebody will say, you know, well, I don't know, I'm not going to judge like love is all that matters, right? It sounds so nice, but as Christians, first of all, we are called to judge when by judge, we mean discern between what's right and wrong. When Jesus said, judge not, or you too will be judged. You can't stop reading there. Matthew 7, 1. You I have know to people go love to, to glom onto that one verse. Yes, it's all about not judging hypocritically. And he and Jesus tells us to take the log out of our own eye, not with that being the end goal, so that we can see clearly to help our neighbor. Right. And people always miss that. It's like we need to see clearly so we can help others. So don't be hypocritical in our judgment. So yes, we should be discerning. And it's not this con- it's not this contradictory thing about judging and loving. Sometimes when we are being discerning, that's the most loving that we can be. So for Christians, like I was talking about earlier, it's so important that we understand that our love for others has to be defined by and given context by our love for God first. Mm -hmm. When we first love God, we love his truth and we want to share that truth with others. And so we love them by the way that we love God. So love is all that matters. Well, kind of, as long as you mean that we need to love God and love others in that order and how that extends, because depending on how you define love and love is all that matters, that's going to change how two people would approach a situation completely. For the right. secularist who defines love by affirming what some, whatever journey someone wants to be on, they're going, if you say love is all that matters, well, they're going to make a totally different decision in loving someone as all that matters. So we have to, I, I, a lot of people don't like to get into these complicated de- definitions and are like, oh, it's just semantics. And aren't you just making things more complex? Like, you know, God just wants us to love, but it's, it's necessary. We have to have these conversations. We have to be more nuanced. Because if we're not, we're just going to talk past each other and we cannot be the salt and light that we are called to be in our culture if we're not willing to dig in and get into the dirty details and help people see the differences when we're talking about these definitions. So we have to be really careful. Don't get sucked into the nicest sounding beliefs. Anything can sound nice. You know, it's very Pollyanna. So nice. (laughs) But is it true? Is it true? Is it right? Those are questions that we have to ask. Because it can sound nice, but meanwhile, you're aiding and abetting someone down a path of destruction. And so it's it's actually not nice. It's actually very harmful, which we, we talked about earlier, harm. Um, and you in the book, you also talk about kind of, I think you touch on six false Jesuses, but just talk about the the one, uh, the socialist Jesus. Talk about how that's that that idea is false. Yeah. So I have a chapter on discernment specifically about who Jesus is. And in that, I talk about these six different types of Jesuses that sometimes parade around that you see online a lot. And one of them is a socialist Jesus. So a lot of people have this idea that Jesus actually 
would have been a socialist if that kind of system was around at his time on earth, or that if he were here right now, physically on earth, that he would be a socialist and employ socialist policies. But this is a really big misunderstanding of what socialism is. For socialism to to be defined here, socialism is an economic structure where the government is taking forcibly from the citizenship and reallocating so that you have this complete equality amongst people. Okay, so it is a government taking and is a government reallocating. This is nothing that Jesus taught. This has absolutely nothing with what Jesus said that we should do. Jesus said nothing about, okay, let's put this in the hands of the government, corrupt or not. The government gets to do this. The government gets to take everything and we're going to give to everyone so that we no longer have poverty. This isn't what Jesus said at all. Sometimes people just think, well, socialism is the nicest sounding thing, going back to what we were talking about before, because it helps make sure that no one is poor, supposedly. You know, it it makes sure that everyone's taken care of in some way. And Jesus wanted people to be taken care of. And that's how people make that connection, but they're not understanding what socialism actually is. And so Jesus wants us to give in a, in a non-compelled way out of the, the love in our heart for our neighbor and take care of one another. He's never calling us to say, okay, government, you take from everyone and you redistribute amongst the masses. That's, it's just not a biblical concept. So we have to be careful once again, with our definitions, it's not just, well, socialism sounds nice. It's no, well, here's what socialism actually is. This is not what Jesus called us to do. This is not how Jesus said we needed to structure a society. Yeah. And in the book and people always often go to the book of acts, the early church and say, look, they were socialists, but it's actually, no, they were, it wasn't compulsory what they were doing. It was out of love that they were giving to their neighbor, giving to their brothers and sisters in Christ. So it wasn't compulsory from the government. Right. Right. They got together. They made that decision. That was their choice to live in, in that way. So in the book, you also get into cancel culture and I mean, cancel culture is so toxic and demonic um, because there's no, in cancel culture, there's no forgiveness. Like biblically, we forgive, there's reconciliation, there's restoration, but cancel culture is just like, you're done and you're completely canceled for the rest of your life. So talk about how, talk about cancel culture and why do you think it is so uh, prevalent today? Like what, where did this come from and why is it so prevalent? Yeah. So when you write a book, as you know, you go into it with a lot of ideas about what you're going to talk about and hopefully a pretty good knowledge base. But when you get writing, there are also things that dawn on you that maybe you hadn't thought of before. And you learn from what you're processing and you're researching. And for me, writing about cancel culture was that big aha moment that I started to realize the ties of why people think this is okay. Because like a lot of people, I was looking at it like, how does anyone think this is okay? How is anyone thinking it's a good idea to not completely support free speech? Why can't we handle other ideas? Like it just, I I couldn't get my head around it. I just thought people didn't understand that that could be a slippery slope toward not having free speech. Okay. So that was like utter naivety because when you understand where it comes from, then it all starts to make sense. And this is actually one of my favorite chapters in the book, because it was eye-opening for me to kind of discover these roots. 
So cancel culture is ultimately rooted in secular social justice, which is based on what's called critical theory. And critical theory is a rather complex academic concept. There's been a lot talked about. It manifests itself in some different kind of sub theories, for example, queer theory and feminist theory, post-colonial theory, critical race theory, which is talked about Mm -hmm. a lot. These are a whole family of theories, but the underlying idea of it is basically this, that everyone can be divided into two groups oppressors and the oppressed. And if you are an oppressor group, then you are oppressing, obviously, the oppressed people. And you are put into that position. You you have that power to do that because of social structures. So the oppressed are oppressed because of social structures and the norms of society that have been in place. That's a very, very simplified bare bones uh, explanation of it. But yeah. that's the key that you have to understand before you get to the whole cancel culture, because cancel culture is based on this same secular social justice idea of critical theory underpinnings. When people believe, when they're talking and thinking in these terms of oppression and oppressed, then it is an easy step toward, well, if you're saying things that are harmful, by their definition, like we talked about earlier, then you are part of the oppressive system. You're part of the norms. You're part of the power structure. So we might not have anything that we can do to you yet because we're not in power, but what we can do is ignore you. We can make you go away. We can make you go away. We can take down your social platforms. We can take down your ability to speak. This is the mentality that's behind it. And I actually share quotes in the book from people who are explicitly saying this, who are in favor of cancel culture. So the way they see it is, no, this isn't a bad thing. You're harmful and you're oppressive if you have these views that are considered by the mob standard to be oppressive. And so you're, if you have a different view, let's say that, for example, going back to the gender binary example that we were talking about earlier, if based on some people's view that it's harmful to perpetuate a gender binary, then they'd want to take you down because you're an oppressor in that sense. And that means you're evil. So you're not just wrong. You're actually evil and you're hurtful with your ideas and your views. So we're in this culture that sees the ideas themselves as harmful And the most mind-blowing thing to me to understand was they don't care about free speech. This is not a foregone conclusion that free speech matters anymore. Free speech is considered harmful because it allows those in power to continue using that power to oppress people, or I guess we should say to make them feel oppressed. And so for me, this was really a big aha moment because I realized my whole ongoing assumption was totally wrong. I here I thought that everyone wanted to protect freedom of speech and they just these people, they didn't understand that this was a slippery slope and we weren't going to have this. No, they understand it completely. They don't want free speech. They want one accepted viewpoint that is from the view of the so-called oppressed so that they can take away the power of the oppressors. It's all about bringing down the evil in the world. And they feel that they're on the moral high ground of doing this. So they don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah. And of course, it's all rooted in Marxism and the idea of kind of we can create a utopia on this earth and human beings are capable of creating this utopia. And it's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) We already tried all this in the 20th century. It didn't work out so good. Um, And the only utopia that's going to happen is when Christ returns and makes everything right. And and there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. So 
this kind of attempt at utopia and canceling people and sending people kind of figuratively into the gulags, that's never going to, it's never going to work ever, 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 ever until Christ returns. And that's, that's the only time when utopia is going to be set in place when he returns. So um, I just want to ask one last question. Uh, You talk about kind of evangelism and uh, kind of why, why, and this is based on, I mean, we've talked about this in this episode, but why are you talk about millennials and how they're kind of reticent to evangelize or, or maybe even Gen Zers, I don't know, but um, young people are reticent to share the gospel or share the good news because of these forces. Now, so, so tell me, and you talk about this in the book, tell me why, what is the reason that evangelism is kind of waning in, in kind of younger people? Yeah, this is really interesting, the statistics behind this, because they found that 96% of millennial Christians agree that part of their faith means being a witness for Jesus. Okay, so we've got nearly everyone who's like, yeah, that's part of the faith. So that's the good news. They recognize that from a biblical perspective, they should be doing this. But then the same research shows that almost half, I think it's 47% exactly, say that it's wrong to evangelize in the hope of converting someone. Think think about that. Right. 96% say this is part of my faith. It should be part of my faith. But then almost half say it's wrong. And why do they say it's wrong? Those two things. (laughs) So these two things cannot be true at the same time. Like this really is a contradiction. It's an example of cognitive dissonance. This is a perfect example of how people are letting secularism creep in because it's like they have the biblical view on one hand, But then they've adopted the secular view on the other that it is wrong because secularism feels that if you are coming in and you're telling someone what they should believe about God, well, you're arrogant, you're arrogant and you're judgmental. Who are you to think that you know better than I do about God? And there's, there's another pillar in the book of secularism that I talk about called God is the ultimate guess. And what I mean by that is that it's okay from a secular perspective, if you believe in some kind of God. A generic God's perfectly at home in a secular worldview. What's not at home is a specific God who has revealed himself, mm-hmm. who has made specific requirements known. When you get to a God of scripture who has actually told us what's right and wrong and who he is and who we are and basically becomes our authority. When you get to that, that's not okay within secularism. So when I say God is the ultimate guess within the secular worldview, it means, yeah, everybody go ahead, think what you want about this God that's out there, but just don't think that you have any confidence for knowing anything more about that God. There can be no confidence because confidence in a God concept, confidence in knowing that the, the God of the Bible is the God would be very threatening to a secular worldview because now you would have to accept the authority of God rather than the authority of the self. It's a very threatening view from that perspective. So it's interesting because if God's the ultimate guess in that no one has a confidence in knowing something specific about that God, if you're coming from that perspective and someone comes to you and they're like, I want to tell you about what God wants for you. I want to tell you what's right or wrong. They're like, who are you to say that? Because they're right. assuming their presupposition is that the Bible's not true. 
So this is where I think a lot of Christians really need more understanding of apologetics to be able to demonstrate why is there good reason to believe the Bible is actually true? Because otherwise a secularist is just coming from the perspective of, look, nobody, nobody knows, you know, you might have your idea of mine, but obviously that's, that's fine. If, if I want to believe differently. Uh, And and then the, the second, the second part of that, that I think is really interesting is that in secularism, there's kind of this assumption that beliefs don't really matter because they're just a matter of opinion when it comes to God, but behavior is important. So somehow, even though they don't know anything, according to their own worldview about what this supposed God wants from us, they've determined that behavior is important. We want to act nice. We want to be good to others. However you define mm-hmm. good. We want to love people, right? Behavior becomes all important. So we have to remember as Christians that when we go and we talk to someone, we're trying to tell them about Jesus because there are true beliefs about reality and about God that one should hold that have eternal implications. When we go and talk about that, we're coming from the perspective that beliefs matter in an eternal way. They're coming from it that, well, beliefs don't matter, but behavior does. So if we come and we tell them you need Jesus, they're not hearing that in terms of this is a belief and this is a relationship and this is something that is important in that way. They're thinking that you're condemning how they live their life. They're thinking that you're saying something about their behavior because that's what they assume to be important. That's the only thing that they think is important. And so that's another one of those bridges that we have to build because people get super defensive thinking you're making some kind of statement about how they're living without realizing that there's a much, much bigger picture here that we're trying to share about truth, that what you believe matters and how you behave matters too. But that has to be an outcome of your belief. So it's- It's a difficult time. It's a difficult culture for sure. But I think the more that we understand where that secular mentality comes from, where that secular worldview comes from, the more we're in a position to build those bridges that are so important. Yeah. And it's you reminded me of, I don't know who came up with this phrase, but it just, it's okay. It's like, it's okay to seek God or to seek the truth, but it's not okay to find it. Absolutely. <laughs> the culture doesn't so like true. it when you find the truth. They don't like right. it. Okay, well, we're going to leave it at that. Again, guys, the book is Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. We'll put the link down below. It's Natasha Crane. Natasha, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. All right, see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Everyone wants to change the world. Capital Ministries is doing just that, one heart at a time by creating disciples of Jesus Christ among political leaders in the U.S. and foreign nations. For more than 25 years, founder Ralph Drawlinger has written Bible studies specifically for public servants. Study along with us and learn what the Bible says about capitalism, communism, abortion, same-sex marriage, and other contemporary issues. Subscribe and follow us at lifeaudio.com or search Capital Ministries on your favorite podcast platform.